Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, along with my co-host, Bonnie Quinn. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and on Bloomberg.com. Earlier this morning, we got some disappointing jobs numbers. Payrolls, they rose 49,000 in January after a downwardly revised 227,000 decline in December. Economists, they had forecast a 105,000 gain for January. So disappointing, certainly. Uh, let's get let's dig deep into those numbers. We do that with Tom Gimbo. He's a founder and CEO of LaSalle Network. LaSalle Network is one of the leading staffing and recruiting firms in the country. Tom, what did you make of the jobs data this morning? If I told you last April or May that we'd be at 6.3% unemployment and we'd add 50,000 jobs in uh, in January, I think most people would have taken that deal. Good point. We get a little entitled here sometimes. And, and what we're seeing is we still have hospitality and leisure and restaurants that are, are really severely hampered due to COVID. And we're still adding jobs and unemployment to 6.3%. Like, We've got, to, we've got to take it with a grain of salt some perspective of where things are at right now. Yeah, I mean, it's terrifying to see that manufacturing actually lost jobs. They were down 10,000. Private payrolls were just up 6,000. And, you know, economists have been looking for 163,000. That's such a massive difference. What's the gap here, Tom? Why are people not seeing how bad this is? Well, the, distribu- the distribution of the vaccine has really been hampered. I think that, that most people... Uh, and I'm talking to CEOs, CFOs, and leaders of HR every single week. And the belief was that we'd be getting this rollout of these vaccines in a lot more fluid fashion and that it would be getting into the, the mainstream, not just the elderly and first responders. And that would help uh, lift up uh, a lot of the, the hospitality and, and restaurant and leisure activities. And we haven't seen that. But, but the, the positive is, is that we did see such a big increase in temporary hiring and that means the companies are bringing people in and they are getting work done. There are jobs being added. And that's a net positive, And that really is a sign to uh, a recovering economy. Tom, how do you expect some of those areas that have been hit hard, like leisure, like the restaurant industry, um, you know, how do you expect those jobs to come back? Will it be kind of a linear uh, in line with vaccinations? How do you see that playing out? I think it, it'll be, it, it's linear to it, but it, it'll, it'll be delayed because people are, are, have a little bit of cautious optimism. And I think what we'll see, the timing of it's going to actually be really good for the economy. And, and what I mean by that is we should get rollout to most people in April and May. And that leads right into the summer travel season. And it also leads into baseball games and concert tours, people being outside at beaches and restaurants. And so with, with people being comfortable to eat outside and you know, now, currently, and then on top of that, the vaccine rollout to the average population and the summer, um, it, there's reason to be optimistic that we're going to see a jobs market boom in June, July, and August. How much does that depend on stimulus and how it's apportioned, though, Tom? I'm not so sure that it depends on the stimulus that much. I think, you know, the stimulus is, is really, there's so much to slice and dice on that. And you have the, um, the, the infrastructure part, I think, is great. Because if, if we can get people working in, in those types of jobs that the country needs anyway, that's a positive. I'm one of those that remains skeptical that giving money to people that already have jobs and haven't lost it and haven't been negatively impacted, 
I'm not sure that does anything more than just make people happy. And happy doesn't create an economic boom. It creates complacency. Tom, you know, one of the concerns out there is some of these job losses that we've, that we've seen over the last 12 months, they may be more permanent than maybe we initially thought. As you talk to hiring managers, what kind of feedback are you getting on, on, on some of those discussions? Yeah, the, the, so there's always going to be jobs that are eliminated due to technology, and, and, and this time the technology is remote work and video conferencing. But we're talking about 20 years ago that things moved to the Internet and people thought printers would go away and you wouldn't have uh, commercial printers or, or, or uh, consumer printing services anymore. And it, they lessened, but they're not gone automatically. And we can always go back to the horseshoe and the automobile. So you're always going to lose jobs. We shouldn't make it a catastrophic thing that it's the result of this recession. It's the result of technological evolution. And it'll happen now and it'll happen again in three years and in seven years. And we'll continue to see that. And that's why having people that are in the trades that we're always going to need, plumbers and carpenters and, 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 and service workers are really important. And then also having a population that goes to college and they learn how to code and they learn accounting and finance skills and they learn the law and they learn social sciences. Those are important. And, and I think if we continue the, down the path that we've always done, everything will work out. What were the calls you were getting in the last month for people looking for temporary workers or even permanent workers? Across the board. We had it for marketing. We had it for sales. We had a huge demand, as always, for IT, especially uh, security and uh, cloud computing. A ton of accounting and finance back offices. Uh, healthcare revenue cycle as hospitals became uh, able to do uh, more traditional procedures. So, I mean, I'm on the board of directors for the American Staffing Association, which is the largest, largest uh, temporary staffing membership association mm-hmm. in the country. Yep. And we've seen across the board that businesses are, are in a recovery mode and using our services now well, more than Well, Tom, ever. that is good news, and let's hope that it continues an even, even stronger pace as we go throughout 2021. I know people surely need it out there. That's Tom Gimbel of LaSalle Network, the global staffing company. According to our COVID tracker, worldwide cases at 463,483 in the last just most recent glimpse of what we're looking at. Let's bring in Lauren Sauer from Johns Hopkins University to talk to us a little bit more now about where we are overall, by the way, from the beginning. We're looking at 105.01 million cases. Lauren, these new strains of the coronavirus, do you anticipate there will be more of them? And have you seen any? Are we starting? to see more of the ones that we know about? Yeah, we are starting to see um, more cases of the um, variants uh, that were first discovered in Britain and um, in South Africa, across the globe. So, um, and that is probably a mix of having more cases of uh, that are associated with the variant popping up, but then also um, once we noticed these early cases, we increased our sequencing or surveillance efforts to identify them. So it's probably that we're seeing them um, increase in their case numbers, but also in our ability and desire to detect them. Lauren, um, it's Super Bowl weekend. How concerned are you that this might be a super spreader event in terms of people having big Super Bowl watch parties? Yeah, I think we're all a little concerned about this in the same way we've been concerned from other holidays. I mean, it's 
uh, in many of the states across the country here, it's cold. Um, people are going to be indoors because they're going to be specifically watching TV. Um, it's, you know, it's, it is an event that we know people gather for, and many people will be excited to, to have something to celebrate. Um, uh, we know that there's big parties across the country during Super Bowl Sunday. And so I think, um, I, I think the message is similar to what we heard over the holidays. You know, try to limit your, your travel, try to limit your gathering and your contact with other people, especially people that are not in your bubble or in your immediate family. And, and really, you know, stick with it. And I, I think that's hard to say and it's hard to hear, but the more we stick with it, the, as we get more and more people vaccinated, the more, um, the closer we get to some sense of normalcy and, and the, that idea of returning back to our daily lives. Lauren, I mean, if you had your, your way and, and you wouldn't probably want to make decisions like this, but would you have everybody still in a bubble? It seems like we're getting more and more signs that, you know, corporate America, for example, and, and and even the state governments want things to get back to normal a little bit. So there's a little extension of things like, um, you know, the 10 p.m. curfew on Sunday, for example, for the Super Bowl. We're getting more companies suggesting that their workers come back to work for a couple of days a week. Unions and public schools are locked in a battle about whether teachers should come back to the classroom. Why should things be any looser now when, you know, ostensibly it's more dangerous out there? Yeah, it's a great question. I think um, what we're struggling with is how hard it is to um, maintain this distancing, right, um, and maintain this alternative approach to how we interact with people. Um, schools obviously are incredibly important, one of our highest priorities to get back to normal. But I agree with you. I mean, I think um, it is very dangerous out there. And w I, in some places, we're having increased case counts. I mean, we have seen a drop since the post-holiday surge, which is fantastic, but all the more reason to keep it up. We'd love to see things go back to normal, people returning to classrooms and to workplace um, and being able to you know, have social gatherings. But we can't do this up and down where every time things start to drop and cases start to fall, we try to go back to pre-COVID times because then we just see those surges again. We have to, you know, really stick with it as vaccines come online, as we get better at treating, as we clear out the cases from our hospitals and make room. Um, that's where we have to focus. We, we would, there's no one more than public health, you know, experts who would love to see um, things return to a sense of normalcy. You know, we've been going full steam ahead for over a year now. And, and I think the, the, uh, the approach of sticking with it for a bit longer as we start to develop herd immunity uh, through vaccination um, is really, really important. Mm. So, uh, Lauren, as we, we have the AstraZeneca vaccine, the Pfizer vaccine, what's the next vaccine that you expect to come into the market that you'll be putting into the arms of your patients? Yeah, I think everyone's very excited about the um, Johnson & Johnson vaccine. It sounds like they're up for um, emergency use authorization now, which is fantastic. Um, this is a one-shot vaccine, which is even better because the logistics of delivering it um, will be streamlined um, and may allow for some novel approaches to vaccine delivery. Um, and any new tool in our toolkit is really just very, very exciting. Um, so I think... 
that's the next one that we're expecting to see online. And at least in the U.S., we'll probably start to see it pretty soon. This also has the potential to be really beneficial in places where we don't have strong cold chain storage and we um, need more logistical support for the two-dose vaccine. Um, so I think everyone's hopeful, sort of waiting to hear from the FDA on that. And um, I know they just scheduled a meeting. So uh, looking for that February 26 readout on whether or not this one will come forward with another emergency use authorization. Lauren, about 11 months ago, you know, all of our lives changed dramatically. At the same time, for most of us, it was just a case of waiting and being careful and bit by bit, normality was trying to seep in. For you, however, your whole focus likely had to change to one particular virus, the coronavirus, this particular strain of the coronavirus. What's happened to the rest of the work that you used to be able to do and uh, how much damage do you see created because you've had to, among you know all of the doctors and nurses and, and professors out there, switch your focus to this one particular thing? Yeah, um, it, it's something that I think about a lot, usually sometime between the hours of 2 and 4 in the morning when I can't quiet my brain. <laughs> yeah. um, it's, it, it, it sometimes feels like we don't know what we did before COVID because this has been such an all-hands-on-deck approach. And I, I absolutely worry about my colleagues and especially the healthcare workers out there who are solely focused on this and all the efforts that we've redirected to respond, which those efforts are incredibly important. But you're right, there's all this other work that we have been doing and strengthening health systems and working on public health interventions that have, have really fallen by the wayside. And I think we're going to see the, the both the negative and the positive effects of all this public health strengthening for years to come because we've dropped a lot of programming. You know, I think a great example is that we're worried about childhood vaccinations. Um, we're worrying about people who have had their underlying health conditions not being treated as much because they either are scared to go to the hospital or the hospital didn't have capacity for them, where outpatient visits have been canceled. You know, there's going to be a lot of downstream health, economic, public health, um, and social impacts that we will have to manage and, and work our way out of for years to come. I think we're all looking forward to an opportunity to work on something besides COVID right now. Um, but we just have to get there and we have to get there through making those good choices and continuing those public health interventions that we know work so well. And Lauren, how are the people on the front lines at Johns Hopkins, how are they doing in the emergency rooms and throughout the hospital? I think we're all struggling a little bit. I think everyone's tired. Um, The vaccine arrival was a real boost, I think. But we do have people who are still very vaccine hesitant who um, have some concerns and some challenges to their trust with the medical community that we need to be better at addressing. And we need to work really hard on this community. And just, you know, checking on your friends and colleagues can be really hard when you're also going through the same um, you know, day in and day out slog of this work, it, it is really challenging. So you look for those little highlights of positivity, you know, someone being discharged from the hospital after a really long time or having a friend or colleague who decides to get the vaccine after being unsure, all those little positive notes, um, they're really, they're really, really valuable. You know, just when I was being connected, one of your producers told me she got a puppy. And it's so exciting (laughs) to hear those things. Those little highlights are hugely valuable um, when you have so many challenges day in and day out. Lauren, when this is over, assuming at some point it'll be at least under control properly, will there be a huge amount of grief and and a lot of anger? Or do you think that people are, you know, not blaming anybody for this? They're just sad that it's happening. 
I think it's going to be a mix, and I think a lot of it will depend on um, how um, how the pandemic has challenged your economic stability, your health um, broadly, um, how it's impacted friends and family um, and loved ones near and dear to you, right? So um, the anger is, is reasonable because we had um, ample opportunity to put public health interventions in place um, and they, it feels as though in many cases they were undermined. Um, and a lot of this work is resting on local public health authorities and local health care workers without that functional support that you needed from the top down. Um, and so I think it's going to be a mix of sadness and anger, probably both, probably both coming and going at different times, and it's going to be a, a long time of dealing with it. Mm. Lauren, thank you so much for joining us. I know you have so much to do, and we really appreciate your time uh, each week uh, trying to help us just stay up to speed on all the developments here. We really appreciate your time. Lauren Sauer, Associate Professor of Emergency Medicine at the Johns Hopkins School of Medicine on the phone from Baltimore. And we should note that the Bloomberg School of Public Health is supported by Michael R. Bloomberg, founder of Bloomberg LP and Bloomberg Philanthropy. Well, we are coming up to Super Bowl Sunday, despite absolutely all of the challenges. <laughs> we do have two teams that can play together, including the Seattle Seahawks, which, by the way, were one of the only teams in the league to remain untouched by the virus in spite of so many challenges in that area of the universe. But let's get to the ads part of things, because some people just watch the Super Bowl for <laughs> the ads. Right. Not me, of course. But Tara LaChapelle has a great Bloomberg Opinion piece out talking about how those stalwart advertisers are just not coming back this year because, well, people aren't spending money. And so perhaps it's a way of saving them money. And we're talking about the likes of Budweiser, the likes of Pepsi, the likes of Avocados of Mexico, some of the ones that we were really depending on to entertain us. So, Tara, thanks for joining. And explain to us, the, did this... Uh, exodus, if you like, of some of the major advertisers bring down the price of a 30-second spot? You would think it would, but it didn't. <laughs> the price was an average of $5.5 million for a 30-second commercial. So it did go up from a year ago. Um, but I think that's because what you're seeing is as these big advertisers kind of back away for obvious reasons, just look around at the world, um, you have these upstarts from uh, that benefited during the pandemic and during lockdowns that are using this time to really solidify their brand standing and to, to put their name out there even more in front of people. Um, so they're buying up a lot of the space. You'll see a, a lot of newer companies entering the fray this year. So Tara, let's take a look at, at one of the stalwarts that's not going to be there, Budweiser. What was the rationale uh, that they gave? So I think, you know, it has to do with wanting to conserve capital, use it for things having to do with getting the company through the crisis, I believe they're also donating money. But I, I also think it comes down to if you're a big advertiser and this is the advertising event of the year, you know, as Bonnie said, some people do just watch it for these commercials for the entertainment value. If you don't strike the right tone in a moment like this with not just the crisis and the somber mood we're all in, but also the sort of political tensions out there in the country right now, and these divisions, I mean, it's a really precarious situation to be putting in a, out an ad where, you know, you're banking on people's emotions. And so I think it's just a risk that really wasn't worth taking for the price this year for a lot of these companies. That said, uh, Budweiser's sister brands like Bud Light, they are buying ad space. And same with Pepsi. Uh, they're still sponsoring the halftime show mm. and some of Pepsi's other businesses like Mountain Dew and Frito-Lay. 
they're also buying ad time. So I think it's these companies are trying to shift around where they spend their money and be a little bit smarter about it this year, a little bit more careful. Well, that's just it, Tara, because my next question is going to be, if they're sitting it out this year, then what's to guarantee that they get first dibs next year on where they are in, in the... Uh in the schedule, assuming that they go back next year, of course, but it seems that they are keeping their hand in with the the Super Bowl organization and, and so on, so that brands that might take those spots this year don't get first dibs next year. Yeah, I think, you know, these companies are, they have a strong relationship with the NFL, and um, I think everyone kind of understands this year's been a bit of a weird year, but these companies are still big sponsors. And the bottom line being that they're big advertisers and advertising is not going away. These companies, it's very important to them, whether it's on traditional linear television or on streaming apps and whether it's for something like a big football game or just regular programming. I think that these brands see it as important as delivering video advertising content to people. Tara, what are some of the more highly anticipated ads uh, for this Super Bowl? I know they, some of them get teased out on YouTube and other places. Yeah, there's been quite a few. The one I'm kind of interested in, going back to that idea of you know trying to strike the right tone, um, you have Anheuser-Busch, the parent of Budweiser, doing an, a, their own ad for the parent company. And it's, um, the, the slogan is, let's grab a beer. And you know it's about how you know, at the end of a rough day or really just sort of any purpose, you kind of say, well, let's just grab a beer. And I'm curious to see how that plays out. And, you know, it, it's like you don't want to sound tone deaf at a moment like this. and You don't want right. to use the pandemic for your marketing. But so these companies are really walking a fine line. And I'm curious to see how people receive that. Yeah, Tara, I mean, forgive my cynicism, but are we going to see a bunch of ads playing on sentiment and sentimentality and nostalgia and, you know, getting together when this is all over and appreciating what you have? And, you know, not that there's anything wrong with that, but we don't want to be manipulated into those feelings. And it's also exhausting, right? Like, I think, you know, we're trying to escape this moment, watching, you know, the sports game that everyone loves to see every year. And instead, you're reminded of where we are in the world right now. So I think it is a little frustrating. um, But at the same time, you know, some companies do a really good job with it, too. Mm. So we'll see. We need some laughs. That's what we need. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) So, Terry, you know, from the business side of it, Viacom, CBS, uh, CBS has the rights uh, this year, and they pay a lot of money uh, for NFL rights. Is it still expected to be a big money maker for CBS here? I mean, I think so, but obviously, like year by year, that's the question. And this is slowly, you know, the audience is getting smaller. It's still the biggest uh, programming event of the year, but, you know, more and more people are, are tuning out for various reasons. I mean, more than just cord cutting. I mean, there's just been a lot of pressure on live sports over time. And of course, the more time you've spent away from watching it, you know, it's harder to kind of come back. But I think with the NFL, what was really interesting about them was they were able to get through their whole season all the way up until the Super Bowl. And it's just it's a really um, interesting case that they were able to do this. And I think, you know, a lot of people will probably tune in for that reason, because what else are we doing right now? But you're missing the party aspect, you know, the getting together with friends and the chicken wings and nachos. Like, that's obviously not going to be there this year. But 
you know, it's, it's a definitely a good escape. You mean you're not learning seven different languages, Tara, like the rest of us? <laughs> <laughs> the American Gaming Association says gambling will fall 37% from last year. Can we assume that you know that's that's money that's just not there because, you know, people don't have jobs? Or will some of this money go towards other, you know, Super Bowl-related things, such as food? Yeah, that's a good, good question. I'm not sure. All right, Tara, so thank you so much for that. We appreciate it. Tara LaChapelle, Entertainment, Telecommunications, and Deals columnist for Bloomberg Opinion. I mean, so, Vani, one of the things that's really concerning as it relates to the pandemic is, will this be a super spreader event? Are people going to still go ahead with their big Super Bowl parties? And if so, will we see a spike in, you know, uh, positive cases a couple of weeks from now? Yeah, I mean, you got to think that people will be a little bit careful, but it's, it's just very hard to know. It's not something we can predict. I think um, is it worth is it worth getting coronavirus for Tom Brady? I don't yep, know. that's a valid question. Yeah, I know. <laughs> yeah, but uh, you know, you listen to that Dr. Fauci, and he is very concerned. He made some comments earlier in this week that, just judging by past behavior, when you think about uh, other times to get together, Thanksgiving, Christmas, we definitely saw a spike following those times. And um, I know Dr. Fauci earlier this week was calling out, you know, uh, extolling folks, don't have Mm -hmm. big parties, keep it just within your household, uh, because we're really making gains here in terms of the metrics. Let's not go the other way. So um, we'll see how that plays out. But uh, who are you rooting for, Paul? uh, I'm going to do I'm going to go to Chiefs. I'm going Patrick Mahomes. That's the way I'm going. This is Bloomberg. Coming up, we are awaiting remarks from President Biden. He's talking about the state of the economy and the need for the American Rescue Plan. When we get those remarks, we will bring them to you. First, let's get a sense of what is going on in Washington, D.C. As it relates to this fiscal stimulus plan, we can do that with Bloomberg Deputy Team Leader Anna Edgerton. She covers all things down there on Capitol Hill. Anna, thanks so much for joining us here What do we know? It looks like, okay, we had the Senate passing by a 51 to 50 vote, a blueprint for this $1.9 trillion stimulus. Is it going to get done in this form? Yeah, I mean, they're kind of teeing this up as a backup. Now, it's very likely that they will have to go this route if they can't get in an agreement with Republicans. So the budget reconciliation process that they're trying to use to get around the threat of a filibuster in the Senate is a bit of a long process. So they're starting it now to be able to use it by the end of the month if they can't get any Republican support for bipartisan package. Bipartisan talks are continuing, but most Democrats are not hopeful that they're going to come up with anything. Yeah, I mean, that's one thing. But what about moderate Democratic support? I mean, is Joe Manchin going to be a problem if this does end up being the route that they have to go? That's one reason why this vote was really interesting last night, because it passed 51 to 50 with Kamala Harris as vice president breaking the tie. So Schumer, uh, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer was able to keep his Democrats together on the bill last night. And so that bodes well for them to be able to pass uh, the, the final stimulus package when push comes to shove. So, Anna, we, we, we've seen this budget reconciliation process used before, um, but from a strategic perspective, I'm guessing the White House would much prefer a bipartisan package here. Is there any chance that President Biden, Kamala Harris, two veterans of the Senate can maybe flip some reluctant uh, Republicans? Yeah, I think the stance from the Biden White House is that, yes, they want to do things in a bipartisan way. They're going to have that outreach to Republicans, but they're not going to wait forever. And I think that's a lesson that Biden learned in the Obama White House 
is that he doesn't want to burn a lot of political capital and a lot of time, frankly, at the beginning of his administration looking for Republican support that at the end of the day is just not going to be there. So, you know, they're kind of taking a belt and suspenders approach, passing this this process to to go the Democrat only route if they end up doing that, um, just in case, you know, that bipartisan support doesn't come through. Yeah, but I mean, are Democrats agreed on even the 1.9 trillion in the sense of how much of of that should go to COVID emergency? How much of it go to state and local government bailouts? How much should go to minimum wage? It seems like there's a lot of uh, dissent within the Democratic Party too. So, what would happen if they did end up going the uh, budget resolu- uh, reconciliation route? Yeah, and it's a huge package. I mean, 1.9 trillion dollars is a lot of money, and we kind of lose sight of that with the sheer size of some of the previous uh, relief packages. But but that's a lot of taxpayer money to go towards this pandemic response. And so, you know, I, it'll be interesting to watch people like Joe Manchin of West Virginia and John Tester of Arizona, uh, excuse me, of Montana. Um, but you know, I could see them voting for the final package, saying the need is too great, you know, putting out some kind of statement saying we would have rather gone the bipartisan route. But, you know, at the end of the day, voting with their party, Um, you know, budget reconciliation is a tool that both parties have used. And it's something that Democrats will get a lot of um, criticism for because using this much taxpayer money should have bipartisan support. So, Anna, let's just assume for for right now that this $1.9 trillion does get done, perhaps by towards the end of this month. Um, there is also talk about a, another fiscal stimulus plan, perhaps one more focused on longer-term projects such as infrastructure. Is there talk about that? Is that still on the surface, or is that something that might get pushed down the line? Well, this is something that we've kind of seen in the messaging from Democrats, like House Speaker Nancy Pelosi has been very careful to cast this measure as a relief package. You know, this is not a stimulus package, she'll tell you. This is a relief package. This is just, you know, getting the economy what it needs to um, not suffer worse effects from the pandemic-related closures. The next package will be a proper stimulus package, you know, includes some of those infrastructure measures, you know, looking toward, you know, what kind of structural changes we can make in the economy to make it more efficient, more just, more, uh, you know, all the things that Democrats would like to see in the way that capital flows within the economy. So what will you be looking for next? I mean, we're obviously going to be hearing from the White House team in a few minutes about uh, COVID-19 response, for example. And later on, we know Jared Bernstein is going to be speaking to the public. What kind of case are we going to hear today from Democrats? I think you're going to hear a lot about the jobs report that came in a bit weaker than expected. And that's kind of an argument for going big at this moment. So, you know, if we had gotten a really robust jobs report this uh, this morning, that would have taken some of the wind out of these stimulus sales. But since those numbers came in a little bit lower than expected, that's going to be something Democrats use to justify really going big with this round of stimulus. All right, Anna, so we have the stimulus uh, discussions, but we've also got this thing next week called impeachment. How is that going to play out, do you think, in terms of other business going along with the impeachment? 
Yeah, and you know, it's really interesting to see how this impeachment process has kind of become an afterthought in the Senate. You know, they have been busy confirming Biden's cabinet nominees and and working on the stimulus package. But of course, it will be the business of the day next week. And I don't think they're going to be able to set up a dual track where they do regular Senate business in the morning and deal with the impeachment trial in the afternoon. And it's almost something you kind of get the sense on Capitol Hill that people wish they didn't have to do. You know, it's politically uncomfortable. It brings back bad memories of the you know Trump administration. They just want to kind of get it behind them. So no multitasking is what you're saying? No multitasking, but probably a push to make it a short trial. You know, there's not much desire on either side of the aisle for this to go much past a week. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's pretty amazing. It, it will start next week, though, and we will likely be very tuned in. Yes, of course. <laughs> and, and, and any sense that what role former President Trump will play in the defense at all? Do we have any inkling there? So he received a letter yesterday from the House impeachment managers. You know, these are the nine House Democrats that act kind of like prosecutors in the trial. And they asked the president to testify under oath to either appear before or during the Senate impeachment trial. And Trump's lawyers responded and said that that would not be happening. They said that this was a political ploy, you know, just kind of a, a, a pointless ask from the House impeachment managers. But, you know, it'll be interesting to see the way Trump's legal team presents his case, because we'll, we'll expect to see some influence from Trump himself in the arguments that they make, especially the way that they talk about the November election. You know, I don't expect them to really echo his claims that the election was stolen in those words, but even in the brief response that they fi- filed on Monday, um, we, we did get kind of a hint that they're going to step gingerly around the question of whether or not the election was legitimate, which, of course, it was. Yeah, Lauren, or Lauren Sauer was at this a few, a few minutes ago. That's why I had her name in my head. But Anna, we are going to let you go because there's a lot happening right now. Anna Edgerton is Congress's deputy team leader for Bloomberg. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Bonnie Quinn. I'm on Twitter at Bonnie Quinn. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.